0: something in the static
1: with Sean B. Wilson Welcome to episode 3 Want to know what's ahead curious good because that natural human inquisitiveness is what this show's all about You'll meet professional curious person, biological scientist Casey Burns, plus immortal man Tiberius Melchard returns to discuss his career as a great adventurer, in the course of which we found that we shared a mutual distaste of teaching. Asking you questions and then you have to um, give them answers just because they want to know it. Calling out the role. That takes a while. You can't say
2: some of the names. Yeah, just boring. I talked to Aristotle about that. I said, what's it like teaching... Alexander the Great, because he was his sole tutor.
1: Well, roll call would have been quicker. And Tiberius' son Ralph heads off on his own adventure to track down the library of Alexandria.
3: And in one of those rash decisions that love forces onto the best of
1: us, they disappeared one night. The sky ablaze. It's a dramatic tale with plenty of stupid voices and paternal narration. Now let's have some friendly advice and handy tips.
0: I'm known for my incredible inquisitiveness. I'm always investigating things, just for the hell of it. Obviously, if I find anything really important, I tell the cops. Over time, I've learnt not to tell them celebrity dating gossip. They're just not into it. But if you know about a drug smuggling ring, all of a sudden, you're the prettiest girl in school. So take it from me. Police are way more into guns and death and drugs and crap like that than sleep crushes. Basically, they're total sickos. If you're going to keep a diary, you need to realise that people look at other people's diaries. I know I do. So if you want to keep it private until it's adaptation into a misery memoir, you'll need to take steps. When I started writing a diary, I took the step of creating an additional stunt diary. Thanks to this forward thinking, my parents have spied upon a censored, vaguely based upon reality version of my life. The stunt diary presents my day-to-day, as it could be if you weren't paying attention. Thanks to it, my parents are entirely unaware of the time I sold a keychain for a bet, but are incredibly embittered towards my sister. I saw no reason to censor her life. She really shouldn't say such terrible things about the people that brought her into the world. I mean, I only made up maybe half of them. She was probably thinking all of it anyway. Possibly without quite so much cussing. My friend Jenna. Well, she's not really my friend. But anyway. She's always reading, trying to find stuff out. Like how to make a Russian doll version of Barbie. Kill a Mazterdon. Move toupees with your mind. You know, junk like that. But she can never actually find anything she wants to know. So I tell her, just move on. Why should I? It's a waste of time. Find out about the Boer War or something. It's easy to find out about the Boer War. Then you'll actually find what you're looking for. That's not the point at all. (sighs) She's just not into it. Not the Boer War specifically. The whole researching things that can actually be research thing. Jenna's all like, wait... (laughs) Wait, I'll do the voice. When I look for what
2: can't be found, I find what no one else is looking for. Even if I didn't find out the lifespan of a dragon along the way, I discovered so many things that I could never have even dreamed of. Have you ever heard about the road less traveled? I'm searching for the ideas less thought the things to think about, and the ways of thinking that can't be found by looking, only by
0: stumbling upon them. I only hang out with her because she's my best friend's cousin, right. Curiosity's fine in everything, Unfortunately, it's also the cause of me trying out green and orange as a hair colour, fried chicken as breakfast, and once upon a time, my ex boyfriend as a boyfriend. get stuck on beaches because they've heard so much about them. From day one it's like, stay away from the sand traps on the edge of the world, for none shall return. Beaches are whale horror villains. If it weren't for the whole underwater thing, they'd float around campfires telling their terrifying tales. And he never returned. Once they mature, obviously whales believe the stories of their youth to be nonsense and move on, but a few dwell on the fabled bad land stories of their childhood. Some seek it out to prove to themselves that it isn't real, It couldn't possibly be true, surely. Others do it simply because they know it's stupid and dangerous. <laughs> you know the type. Pushes buttons because it sees not to, not bothered with seat belts or drink driving laws, Never gave up on their dream of striking at the Olympics. Did it eventually, but unfortunately, it was during the javelin throw. <laughs> Whatever they are, whoever they were, once they reach the shore, the place of their nightmares, their bodies become heavy leaden strangers. They become one of the idiots in the stories that they laughed at, stuck Stupid. Stranded.
1: That piece featured Julia McIntyre and Sophie Kemp. Bit claustrophobic, wasn't it? Let's head outside.
2: We want to know when they're feeding, we want to know when we want to give them food.
1: I'll show you how
3: it
2: opens. I'm
1: in Karori in Wellington at the beautiful wildlife sanctuary Zealandia on a warm late winter afternoon and like this school group we're about to go on a tour. Our guide is the inquisitive Casey Burns, senior lecturer at Victoria University's School of Biological Sciences. For the last few years he's been walking a set trail looking at how New Zealand birds and plants interact.
4: Ecological systems are horrendously complicated and extremely difficult to understand how they operate in isolation. We've also had a really heavy impact on New Zealand's fauna since human beings showed up 750 years ago. There's a female stitchbird <laughs> being chased by a bellbird. So, can you see its head? Its head's purple because it's been visiting fuchsia flowers. I bet it's going to go down to that fuchsia tree and visit some flowers right now. It's a preferred food of bellbirds. Um, so it's right at the beginning of the flowering season and it's almost time for the bellbirds to begin breeding. And they rely really heavily on the nectar produced by fuchsia flowers and their fuchsia pollen is blue. So when they pollinate the flowers, it paints their head blue. So right down, one male bellbird foraged for fuchsia flowers. What we've been using is network theory to better understand interactions between plants. What I'll do sometime soon, actually, is use the data to work out a food web, basically, or a network of interactions between plants on one hand and birds on the other to better understand the structuring of how the two are coupled together. What ignites your interest in trying to understand the environment more? For people who are handyman that like working around the house and like solving little problems when things break, I'm pretty horrible at that sort of thing, but uh, it's quite similar that the bush is filled with little problems, uh, uh, and bigger problems actually, where if you train your mind to think inquisitively, not in terms of, oh gee, there's a Kofi tree, but boy, how did that Kofi tree get to be there? how does it interact with birds, why does it germinate in this particular locale versus others, does it compete with other trees? The list of questions just steam ahead. It's easy once you train yourself to sort of think of the bush from a curiosity-based perspective, the whole world opens up sort of in front of you as an endless, uh, um, or nearly endless, list of questions that need to be solved. I
1: suppose when I walk around a place like this I'm just thinking, oh isn't it lovely? It's quite nice this. I'm not going, why isn't everybody just killing themselves? Why is anything growing? How is this happening?
4: Because Sometimes I ask my classes before I teach them anything whether or not they think the world conforms to sort of a a random perspective or a tightly co-evolved perspective. So I say, you know, there's two opposing thoughts about how the world might be put together, the natural world might be put together. One is that species interact pretty much independently, and they come together as communities just by chance. And the other one is, well, the process of evolution, which we know is true, but does it occur frequently enough in the wild so that species are put together like puzzle pieces in a way? There's something about it that's attractive to the human mind, that every species has its own place, its own niche, that uh, it needs to fill for the whole community to function properly. So most students always say, well, yeah, it's that tightly co-evolved perspective that makes most sense. But as you spend more and more time trying to figure out how the bush is put together, the more you realize that, well, it doesn't always work, that perspective, and the the randomized perspective, like taking this European blackbird and throwing it into an entirely new place where it hasn't had any evolutionary history with the flora at all, and it does just fine. Thank you very much. It's a bit warmer over here, eh? you bet.
1: calling back to you?
4: Not interesting. When I started these daily walks, I noticed that the robins would come up real close, and one day I sort of abandoned my walk and just followed, followed the robin around and what it was doing, and, and uh, they spend most of the day scratching around the leaf litter looking for really big invertebrates like wetta or, or giant native earthworms, and when they find one. They'll break it up into pieces, it's far too large to eat whole, Um, so they'll break it up into pieces, eat as much as they can, and store the rest in shallow depressions and tree branches. A particular bird that stores its food up in the treetops is only 50% likely, at best, to be the one that actually retrieves it more often than not, it's its mate. And some students have picked it up and done a really, really great job showing that they have a really sophisticated sense of... Uh, uh, or set of cognitive traits that, that help them remember where case sites are and help them remember the amount of food in each case site. And help them gauge whether or not their mate actually saw them store the food and whether or not they should move it to a new place to avoid it being stolen. There's another Robin right there. Right the another what? Robin. Can you see him? Yes. Um, that's a male. So, he's doing what Robins do actually, he's not, he's not perturbed by us in the slightest. So one of my students would have banned it or as part of their project. When they flick their wings like that, they're usually not real happy about this. Usually you find them out in the open turning over leaves, but he's in a really... We're sort of enclosed with a pathway here. Yeah, he's almost in that small stream there. Yeah. So this is how you sort of come up with something new, actually, is it's doing something unusual, trying to work out or hypothesize why it's doing something unusual maybe it's just looking for insects and it's not a big deal but it's certainly in a in a strange spot i always like it if you turn over the leaves a little bit not come right down close to us and have a look oh yeah he's pretty near us right on the branch there can you see the white just on top of its bill there's a small white patch line just on the top of its bill if it's upset it'll pull the black feathers back so that white spot gets bigger and bigger and bigger. I've been trying to work out what that might be for. It's always when there's angst, some sort of social angst. There's a bird too close to it, uh, there's a problem with its mate, or I've gotten too close to one of its case sites. But
1: it doesn't mind getting too close. It went right in that spot of leaves right beside us that you'd shifted aside.
4: That's right, but sometimes when it seems as though they should be upset, they won't show it. Or sometimes when there's really no immediate threat or anything that I'd consider being a problem for it, it'll show its white spots. It's amazing when it actually does show it, it looks like a cyclops, it's, uh, it gives you this feeling that something's watching it, you. Okay. Uh, it's hard to miss when you're trying to figure out how uh, little components of the bush are put together. It seems a little
1: bit more mysterious to me now, <laughs> a little bit more like the mystery of
4: space rather than my backyard. I'd argue we have a far poorer understanding of the birds in our backyard than stars millions of light years away. Even though it's so close and so intuitive in some aspects of it, the trying to work out how the bush is put together is an exceedingly complicated problem. We can predict where Mars is going to be with almost perfect accuracy 10,000 years from now, but we can't really figure out why some translocations of birds take to new sanctuaries like this and other species of birds don't.
1: That was Casey Burns, Senior Lecturer at Victoria University's School of Biological Sciences. Bird watching with me at Zealandia in Wellington.
0: There's something in the static.
1: In this last episode, I thought, seeing as we've been talking about the various volumes of the autobiography of a mortal man, Tiberius Melchard, with the man himself, we should actually hear something from it. The following is a dramatised extract from Melchard, Man of the Mountains. Tiberius Melchard's 26th volume of autobiography. We join Tiberius's son Ralph as he's midway through his search for the Library of Alexandria. The actor Daniel Musgrove takes the role of Ralph Melchard. I play his companion Jack Folstag. Tiberius himself narrates. Apparently, instead of burning down... The
2: Library of Alexandria had merely done that trick where you disappear in a cloud of smoke and leave unnoticed while everyone's still coughing. Ralph heard that the Library had relocated to a somewhat colder climate than Egypt, and just like his old man, set off in pursuit of knowledge in the company of his pal, Jack Falstag. <sighs> bit cold, eh? Yeah. I I wish I'd packed my scarf. Well, Jack, I did say.
1: Yeah. I know.
2: The following day, Jack suggested to Ralph that it might be a good idea to turn back to get a scarf.
1: It'd be really good right now to, you know, have it right now. I understand that, but the
2: nearest scarf is on another continent. It's okay, right? Is this really about the scarf? Of course. You're not having any doubts about the library actually being here?
1: Well, I mean, is it, is, it, is it really that likely that an Egyptian library decided to retire and move to this winter wasteland? Well, you wouldn't think so, but I did have a pretty good source. Who? Nintendo. Nintendo. Sorry, wh- which Nintenhoof? Nintenhoof Jones or Nintendo Parsimonious? Parsimonious. Oh, N- Ninty P. Actually, he's quite good. He's, he's quite good, really. Hmm. Clever chap. Spot on about burning that sorceress. Mm. Well, have, haven't you gotten over that yet? Well... <sighs> it was ages ago. Jack, we were engaged. We had to burn her. Okay, Ralph? It's... it's a woman nosing about in books all the time. It's bad enough when they can read, okay? But she was actually enjoying it. Obviously enjoying it too. She scrunched her nose up every time she reached the exciting bits. I liked the scrunching. Thought it was cute. It was witchy, okay? Witchy. Your father and Ninty P had to push her burning through.
2: Mm. I guess you're right. Her laugh was quite shrill. Very
1: shrill. Very shrill. Very witchy. Gave me a
2: bit of a headache, you know. She hadn't been a sorceress, of course. Very annoying laugh, though. Ralph and Jack began their climb off the tallest mountain in the land. The library was rumoured to be at the summit. On the second day, huddled around their campfire, Ralph told Jack of how he had first heard of the library's relocation. So I was in the town market looking for some fresh potatoes and I spotted a stall that I'd never seen before. It claimed to provide a most extraordinary product. What? Information. Information? Information. Yeah? Yeah. Oh. So I asked the stallkeeper, he's a mysterious man who looked like he's shaved with a blunt carrot and an attitude of disgust, what sort of information he had. All information, extremely informative. What do you want to know? Um, where the vegetable stall is?
3: Really? That is the limit of your thirst for knowledge. Did you have a drink before you came here? Supped up on some facts about eyebrows and goat mating habits before heading out. And that's it, is it? No chaser. Well,
2: sure. I'm always keen to learn more. Wait, is that you, hoof? Course not. I've never heard of...
3: he's gone to... i have just the thing for you. With this information, a whole new world of knowledge could open up before you the Royal Library of Alexandria. Heard of it? Vaguely. Well, it was the most extraordinary scholarly source of all time, really. The library wasn't originally from Egypt. It had been captured, dozing in the shade of a Russian forest. Once it woke up, though, it put up a good fight. But they pinned it down all right. Once in Egypt, it resigned itself to a life in captivity, accepting its role as yet another slave. In its case, to man's desire for knowledge. However, the time came when the library became restless again. Only the presence of the pharaoh's best donkey could calm the library. The Royal Library of Alexandria and the Royal Ass decided to elope. And in one of those rash decisions that love forces onto the best of us, they disappeared one night, the sky ablaze.
2: The library craved a return to a colder climate, so once married, they came here. After I heard that story, I had to find out more. We have to find that library.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely, but did did you get any of them in the end? Any what? Potatoes. No. I'm not really surprised, Ralph. I mean, they had not really
2: been discovered yet. No, they hadn't. And there wouldn't be any potatoes around in Ralph's lifetime either. There were still many years to come until that total moth bag Walt Riley snatched a month's worth of mashed spuds off me. Proper div he was too. Things turned around though. I only had to wait until King James turned up and then Walt couldn't smoke his prized pipe due to his fat head coming loose from his fat neck. Plus by that point I had so many potatoes I'd started throwing them at peasants just a while away the hours. Of course before too long the starving populace heard all about the free potatoes and were lining up to have vegetables smashed into their faces. Rather took the fun out of it, I thought. Anyway, it wasn't long before Ralph and Jack smashed their faces into the Library of Alexandria.
1: Oh, <coughs> Pain. Um, uh, Jack, we found it. We, we, we found it. The library? Better believe it. All hours during opening hours.
2: I don't know what you're talking about. And frankly, I don't care because this library's going to answer all my questions from now on. They walked through the Library of Alexandria, perched as it was atop the mountain summit, past the donkey skeleton, and into a vast room of scrolls. Wow. <laughs> when he later told me the story, Ralph said that he handled what happened next with dignity. Oh dear. Not very good at all. Jack told the story differently.
0: <laughs>
2: One thing about my boy Ralph was that he wasn't great at thinking ahead. It might have been a good idea to learn how to read hieroglyphics before setting out for the library. The only language he could read, his native tongue, now long forgotten, wasn't much use. Except for the swears. Ralph eventually came to terms with his disappointment and recognised his achievement in tracking down the library. When news of the find spread, other parties made the climb but the ancient library of Alexandria had disappeared. It hasn't been seen since, although it is rumoured to holiday in Portugal.
1: Tiberius Melchard, narrating a dramatisation of Melchard, Man of the Mountains. Ralph Melchard was played by Daniel Musgrove. This is Something in the Static. I'm Sean D. Wilson, and for the last time, let's return to my interview with Tiberius. So your new volume of autobiography, your 29th, is called Melchard. Uh, it's a man... The subtitle mm-hmm. It's Manly Man Doing Manly Things.
2: You see what I'm doing now? Because at the end of the day, we all we all are, unless we're women. Right, and there's the option to change as well. There, no, there is. There wasn't always. Although... There has been for a lot longer than most people realise.
1: Well, you were actually the first person to have one, weren't you? And then you reverted back again.
2: <laughs> yeah, I didn't want to get into it. I'm a little bit modest about these things. But in all modesty, I did. I've changed. I've fluctuated back and forth. Um, I spent the entire 16th century as a woman. That was hard because, you know, there wasn't the plastic surgery that there is now, and they used to use wood, a nice soft wood that's now used, um, I think it's called Indian willow, and they use that in cricket bats.
1: In the 16th century... You had started a career as an adventurer. You started searching for the fountain of eternal death because you were sick of living forever. Uh, Yes, and that was partly due to the fact that at that stage
2: I I was having an identity crisis. Mind of a man, body of a woman.
1: I wanted wanted to stop. I I didn't... Yeah. Well, can you tell me about some of the adventures you had in your search for the eternal fountain of death?
2: Yes. Well... I traveled many ways I traveled by boat um, there were, there were, in this time there was there was no motor cars there was no planes like if you wanted to fly you needed to latch on the back of a large bird and, and that was difficult to do right? not many people had done it and so I took to the sea and I, uh, I joined a group of pirates who were basically just copying videos.
1: And videos haven't even been invented by this stage. That's quite I know, impressive. So this was
2: the birth of piracy in its modern form, and I, I was surprised because I didn't understand it. They were pioneers, pioneers, absolutely ahead of and their time. They got completely ahead of their time, and not many people realised that video piracy actually was the precursor to nautical piracy. they were wearing the gold earrings, and they had you know they had birds on their shoulders and wooden legs, but they were viciously, viciously ripping many copies, many copies of uh, early Kubrick. Mm. By ripping, were they just tearing them up or what? Sometimes they were tearing them up. Um, they, they a lot of the time that because of, the, of course the video the, the, the video recorders weren't properly um, developed then. So these were
1: Betamax. Th- th- th-
2: this was Betamax. Yes, this was in the. This is the very very start of this sort of technology, and these guys were working,
1: working their little. Piratical asses of. This had very real consequences because they had to have wooden buttocks after a while. Wood was
2: all that was used for prosthetics in this time wooden asses, wooden breasts, sometimes whole wooden bodies in which they just insert vital organs.
1: You hadn't found the Fountain of Eternal Death yet. No. Was this
2: frustrating? Yet? It was very frustrating because I didn't even know what I was looking for for a start, and I'd heard many people talk about it. I'd read about it in books, and uh, so I would go and I would ask. I would ask around, and uh, I ended up in some of the strangest, some of the strangest places. Um, Mayan temples. Um, I, I ended up in uh, in Egypt at the pyramids uh, because some people believe that Tutankhamun himself had the secret. To eternal youth. Um, Well,
1: if he did, it didn't work out for him, did it?
2: No, ridiculous. Have you seen him?
1: I think there's some stuff missing. He's certainly not alive. He's got half a nose, and
2: most of the rest of his body is—it's—he's not. He's not in good shape. He's not in good shape. He's not in good shape, and I don't—I don't care. I don't care what the rest of those guys are saying. He's not well. Most people think that the Sphinx—that what that is—is just the giant sort of cat-like god or whatever didn't really get into the religion at the time it's actually me Mm. what what, you were sort of cat like yeah well I, i yes i sort of was wearing a weird mask on that day when i was supposed to sit for the model and i shouldn't have done it because it really ruined the the likeness and so now when people look at that they think oh what is that the same problem happened with rushmore i should not have gone as lincoln I've always got this problem. It's about modesty, and so various times throughout my life, I've I like to dress up just to blend into obscurity. Uh, when I gave that speech, uh, the "I Have a Dream" speech, I should never have nuggeted up. I should never have done that. I should never have.
1: Well, no, it's. I mean, obviously, it was it was more common in the day and more socially acceptable. But even even so, that you know, you were basically in disguise. Uh, well,
2: I was. I'm trying to live my life sort of under the. Uh, under the radar, so to
1: speak. By going up in front of a huge crowd and delivering an epoch-making speech. Yeah,
2: well, everyone has their ways. Of Everyone's got their ways.
1: So if you never found the fountain of eternal death, but you did find the fountain of eternal life, but you didn't bother to mark down where it was.
2: I don't carry maps, because I, I like to try and commit everything to memory, but my memory's not as good as it once was.
1: But uh, was is, was it as good as it was then? It, it well, it, so you found the fountain of eternal youth, and then what happened? Well,
2: I had a massive drink of it, and it tasted
1: bloody good.
2: Actually, it was like a it was sort of minty and uh, sort of uh, bubbly, and and then I, then I just felt this course of energy run through me, and I felt
1: like nothing could hurt me you did briefly turn back into a teenager and get quite spotty and actually you were having some stomach pains at the time so So, of
2: course yep that's the thing that's the thing you don't realize first I was expecting to die and then when I had a taste of that fountain as soon as I tasted that fountain it was like have you seen Bic with Tom Hanks um bits of it I think you know Tom Hanks he's a movie
1: actor I believe yes he's the best movie actor ever yeah. I, b- I believe he's he's been in um, television sitcoms as well he started off in the one he also does some producing
2: work I think yeah, he does he's made a couple of fantastic features but it basically
1: I he, felt- he's he's man of all seasons really he is he's four seasons and one Tom Hanks not like Colin Hanks
2: no no
1: no he's
2: you know an autumn very late autumn Cape Town oh hmm so you had the drink going from a, a really rustic baritone to suddenly my voice going all over the place. Well,
1: if, well, you would have passed more easily as a woman that way, I suppose. Well,
2: that, that helped, of course. You know, the beard was not going that well with the woman get up. Mm.
1: I understand that you hadn't actually had an adolescence to start with. You don't really remember how you came into the world. So it must have been quite an experience. It was. I... Yes.
2: There's patches in my life which are blackouts, and that was one of them. It's incredible to look back at that. That was a that was a rebirth really, I guess. That was my pushing aside of the giant rock. And you reclaimed your curiosity and your
1: vigour for life. Oh I, I suddenly I was on an adventure, wasn't it? Thanks Tiberius. An optimistic note to end the series on. Tiberius Melchard will be on tour again next year to promote his thirtieth volume of autobiography. Melchard, man, legend, womaniser, philanthropist. In the final episode of Something in the Static, you heard the voices of Julia McIntyre, Sophie Kemp, Casey Burns, and Dan Musgrove. Music was provided by myself, Glass Vaults, and Forest Spirits. Something in the Static was produced by Sean D. Wilson.